The COVID pandemic has brought into sharp focus the benefits as well as the challenges posed by the global supply chain related to the development of innovative new drugs. Paul Newrider is the Executive Director for International Government Affairs and Trade Policy at Amgen. Before taking a role in Big Pharma, in quotes, Paul was the Senior Director for China Affairs for the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, USTR, and was part of the U.S. Foreign Service from 1987 to 2001. Paul, it's great to see you, my friend. How are you? I'm very good. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. We're here in San Diego, the California, the home of Amgen. Yes, yes. We're not in D.C. It's 105 today. <laughs> With, uh, but it's okay. It's only 98% humidity. <laughs> exactly. Air you can cut. Uh, you know, advanced therapies such as CAR-T are driving the next generation of treatments. The August 2018 issue of The Scientist included a cell and gene tracker of all current CAR-T treatments at the time. It showed that China was running 240 CAR-T trials. The U.S. was running 144 CAR-T trials, but Europe was only running 40. What does this say about the current international innovation climate globally? Judging innovation is pretty tough. And looking at one quantitative metric really only gives one part of the answer and one part of the equation. It's also difficult to judge how many of those CAR-T trials are themselves, you know, genuinely innovative or is one just sort of, you know, iterating various aspects of the, of the problem. However, the numbers do show one undeniable fact is that the innovative landscape in China is significantly different than it was even just a few years ago. And it's expanding rapidly. There's an enormous amount of money involved. Um, uh, venture capital is going into China in a big way, and it's really expanding. We've also seen, at the same time, as your number shows, that the innovative landscape in Europe is shrinking. That doesn't mean that it's not good, but it's shrunk dramatically. When Arthur Damerich wrote his study in 1980, the famous one that was published by the Harvard Business Review, you know, Europe on the 1980 data line was publishing and originating 60% of the medicines. According to research we published today and gave, presented today, U.S. small biotech alone innovates 50% of all new medicines in general. So U.S. is generating the, the vast majority of new medicines. What's happened to EU innovation? You know, the EU, as in the U.S. and in China, has extraordinary scientific talent. It's not a secret that, you know, it's just no special recipe that the rest of the world has about, you know, smart brains or smart scientists. The issue is, is where is the innovation being rewarded? Where are people able to get their money out? Where are they able to raise the money necessary to, you know, start a small biotech, to invest in new clinical trials. It isn't just a matter of being talented. You've got to be rewarded for that. And right now, the rewards are happening in the United States. They're happening in China and in other places. It's not happening in Europe. What does Europe need to do, Paul? Europe has to make a decision. You know, back in the uh, mid-90s, Europe did make a decision. They decided that they did not want to be the center of innovation. They wanted, they thought, they made the decision that controlling costs for, of pharmaceuticals was more important than stimulating innovation. The United States made a different choice. Other countries have made different choices. Others have made the same choice. But the end result is that innovation in Europe it took a second, you know, second row seat to the controlling of costs and the, and the other decisions, political decisions that they made there. So if they want to if they want to 
get back to innovation. And many of the European leaders say they do. You know, in France and Germany and Britain, and uh, if I can still refer to Britain as a European country. Well, I think by proxy it is, yes, <laughs> even though if, uh, there's that wonderful old headline from the London Times, English Channel fogged in, Europe isolated, yeah. I think is that famous <laughs> quote. Yeah. But uh, they need to make the decision that they care about innovation. And that means putting money, you know, behind what they're asking for and looking for. And it doesn't mean you get an instant return on every dollar. There's a risk involved, but they have to be willing to take that risk. It's interesting because if you look at it's if you look at the data that we presented this morning, small biotech innovation is really the global engine that's driving all this stuff. Your, your partners at Amgen, your company as well. You're one of the first, arguably most successful biotechs ever. The reality is Europe is sort of choking off that innovation engine from the small biotech. And if you look at the data, Germany, France, Switzerland, UK, it's predominantly the big companies, not the small companies, whereas in the US it's the opposite. Do you think the regulators there get that? Do they understand the real problem? I don't. And I, it's, a, it's an issue, I think that you're getting at a really interesting question. You are aware, according to the NYU, and they publish a, a systemic look at all industries, last year, the pharmaceutical sector only had a net-net profit margin of 14% under the soft drink sector, yeah. it, lower than the soft drink sector. Yes, it's, and that fact is widely misunderstood. So what you're getting at by your point about the small biotechs is that when you look at this sector and innovation as a whole, if you're only looking at the top guys at the top of the pyramid, the ones who actually bring the products to market or can run the multi-billion dollar clinical trials necessary to do that last step, you're missing the whole picture. When you're thinking about drug innovation, you have to look at the entire ecosystem. And the bottom, the foundation of that ecosystem is the small biotechs. And if they're able to raise you know, enough money to get started, get off the ground, and then get the attention of the larger companies up the chain. The publics in, in Europe, the public in the United States, they don't understand that. They don't see that. Politicians in Europe, I do not think, understand or, or believe that at all. They have no faith in their small you know, companies willing, you know, able to do the innovation. But you're right, in the United States, that's still a very vibrant part of the sector and a really important part for the industry as a whole. Because after all, even us as, as big companies, we put a lot of money into R&D, but most companies of the larger ones have a rough 50 to 50 mix of products that they develop in-house and others that they bring in from outside. And that system's been working. I guess that's really the point. That's an innovation ecosystem that's been delivering enormous results, fantastic results. If you look at the Neller study, which we've collaborated on, and you look at the results, Neller, 20 years ago, you know, had about 117 drugs that were produced over a 10-year period. If you look at the t last 10-year period that we analyzed, you had double that, 217, and it's this ecosystem that works. I mean, how important is that ecosystem to Amgen? Without it, we would not exist. Okay. You can only, you know, we depend on innovative medicines. You know, we also do biosimilars. We do other drugs that keep, you know, are, are keep us in the market. But without new innovative medicines coming to market, we no longer exist as a company. And a new innovative drug is only really a money generator for 15 years maybe, maybe 20 years at the maximum. And so if you don't have new innovative drugs coming in that can fund your whole pipeline, you're going to lose that, that innovative part of the equation. And then every, all we have is you know, generics or biosimilars and no new medicines. And you, we mentioned this international ecosystem, that this is, it doesn't matter where the good ideas are, 
you'll partner with them and then eventually they end up coming to the U.S. Now, before March of 2020, global biopharma expansion in China was seen almost as a de facto reality. It was just a fait accompli. It was going to happen. But given what's happened post-COVID, and now that COVID is an endemic condition, and China's, shall we say, somewhat heavy-handed approach to managing COVID, how is the biopharma ecosystem looking at that Chinese expansion now? Is this still the same mentality that we had in March of 2020 with regards to leveraging that relationship, or are we starting to see things at a slightly more hands-off distance? My experience in China goes back almost 30 years. Which is why I asked the question, sir. Thank, thank you very much. <laughs> Just coincidentally. Just coincidentally, yes. The, um, no, I appreciate it. But in those 30 years, there was never a time where it was wonderful and easy and perfect to invest in China. It's always been a difficult operating environment, somewhat capricious, heavy-handed bureaucratic system that nevertheless has access to an extraordinary market and an extraordinary dynamism among you know, the Chinese you know, people. They have extraordinary entrepreneurial skills and drive that you can sell into but also benefit from. And what also China has is extraordinary depth of scientific talent. If a company is going to be relevant into the future, you have to make use of talent wherever it happens. This is a very difficult, highly competitive business. After all, we aspire to be more profitable than soft drinks. Yeah, one Uh, would hope. One would hope. (laughs) And so we have to make use of all the talent and all the science wherever it happens. Science happens collaboratively, and we need to be able to work with the people in China. We are always calibrating. Every company I know of is always calibrating, making judgments about what the situation in China is going to be. But it's a place where you can do really well and have great science happen there. And you can also use, if you're able to sell into the market, that revenue can help fund further research back here in the United States and eventually allow us to do a better job for American patients. If we're not working hard to serve patients in China and learning from that experience, we're not going to be as good serving patients here in the United States. Well, I mean, even if you're one in a million person, there's a thousand people just like you in China. I mean, that's the reality. But there's also a political will and a political understanding right now that there's an issue there. Do you think the politics are changing there a bit? Um, The politics are getting absolutely more difficult. I mean, just in the last few days, we've seen a proposal uh, from Capitol Hill to increase surveillance of outward bound investment, something which has not happened um, previously. And it's, you know, China is one of the targets of that. And the biotech sector is one of the areas that they want to look at. The Chinese government has said, explicitly stated, that they want to develop their own strong, world-class, innovative, and exporting biotech sector. Which I think is articulated and shown by their interest in CAR-T and the amount of activity you see. Absolutely. But which one of those, you know, CAR-T experiments, either in China or in Europe, is going to pay off? Is going to be the best one? Nobody Nobody knows. So, you know, in a lot of this is a numbers game, and they're willing to put the money in and do it and and learn, and, and we need to take part in that as well. Politics are difficult. There's obviously some real challenges between the two countries. At the end of the day, China has a lot of patients. They have people who need treatment for difficult, grievous medical illness, and we're trying to help that. And I believe that they understand it's in their best interest to continue to allow investment and free exchange of scientific knowledge so that 
you know, both of us can help address those problems. Pivoting back to Europe and some of the comments we were talking about the innovation ecosystem, Amgen initiated our study where we looked at global international pricing discrepancies and how they've evolved over the last 20 years. We looked at the top 10 selling drugs each year and then looked at how the prices have evolved and then the impact on several KPIs that really show that there's an enormous loss of competitiveness in the EU and key things like patent creation, biotech startups, investment in biotech startups. I mean, really ground, at the ground, coal face stuff that you really need to have a good, holistic, thriving ecosystem. Why do you think prices have gotten so far apart, aside from the politics? What, what else is going on there? There's a lack of understanding, I think, on how the industry really works and that you need to be rewarded. I think among the public in many cases, but also among uh, politicians, there's a sense that if you're a scientist, you're just driven to invent. And you're going to do that no matter what your pay is, what rewards there are at the end of the thing. It's not like Alva, you know, Thomas Edison sitting in his basement working on his light bulb alone. Developing a biotech drug or a new treatment for anything requires an enormous number of people. It requires resources, you know, computer resources, personnel resources, scientific resources, connections with hundreds, if not more, hospitals and resources, access to clinical trial patients. That whole process is really expensive. And if you're not willing to give people the incentive to win on that while playing that game, you're not going to get the seed money at the bottom to do it. In February of 2020, before COVID hit, uh, if you looked at the NASDAQ, 80% of the listings on the NASDAQ were biotech listings. It's an incredible number. A lot of those are companies that were relocating or upping their stakes to get late stage equity because they don't get enough late stage financing. Where do you think this ends up? It's a, it's a great question because um, there's a lot of discussion in the United States if we're getting the best end of that deal, I mean, among politicians. I think obviously we are. I think you agree that we are, and your numbers and so many of your studies have shown that exactly. American patients benefit extraordinarily from the very quick access that they get to new and innovative medical treatments and, and treatments designed for their specific problem, not just a hope that one general treatment will sort of do, deal with a lot of different modalities or do a lot of different issues. But that story is not well understood. And I'd like to see actually a more work being done on standards of care across borders. We've tried to encourage governments to adopt uniform standards for reporting quality of care or outcomes results of certain uh, diseases across borders guess what? No one wants those numbers, really, because it's too scary. Um, <laughs> well, the yeah. NHS, it's interesting. The NHS put in um, quality assessments about four years ago where they were looking at the various hospitals and several key metrics. And it was the doctors themselves that absolutely got, just went ballistic. Right. And, and that, politically, that just disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> and that's within one country, right? Exactly. But, you know, are you going to compare Belgium, Spain, and England on, the, you know, on how they're treated? Well, they different... were all part of the Spanish Empire at one point, <laughs> right, right, but that's right. quite a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's uh, no, it's it's a very difficult question, and you're also talking about you know the 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 in terms of the entire healthcare sector, the pharmaceutical part is ten fifteen percent. Yeah, historically, it's eleven to thirteen percent of the overhead cost of the entire healthcare spend. Right. 
So, you know, you're talking about all those other doctors, everything else, they all have their interests and their concerns, and they're fighting for dollars, too. So it's, all, it's very difficult often to get the right numbers. One of the other problems you see in Europe is the availability of health data is very, very practitioner-focused. You'll have a practitioner who does as a clinical trialist at a major state hospital, and they will own, essentially, or they will control bureaucratically their data. Whereas here in the U.S., a lot of the data is owned by the hospital systems, and the doctors are generally well-paid anyway. So the fact that they're trying to become a clinical trialist does not impact their decision to whether or not share data. Uh, how do you, what about these cultural barriers? I mean, when you at Amgen, how do you deal with the fact that it's just very difficult often to get those relationships? That's a really good question because I was uh, actually just in a panel recently about talking about some of the challenges we have with new privacy rules, either in the GDPR. Not just GDPR, but that's clearly a major one, but also throughout Southeast Asia, China, sure. Japan, every country is sort of more interested in data. No, no individual one step stops trials from happening. No individual one regulation stops something from happening. But it's grit in the gears. It's friction. And at the end of the day, when you add up all the various bits of friction... It slows things down and it makes it impossible for us to proceed in a number of ways. We address the question, the specific question that you're asking by doing a lot of education. You know, we host lots of seminars. We do a lot of outreach. We, have, we work with patient groups as much as we can so they can become advocates for better progress in certain disease areas. We do that because people need to be educated, need to understand what's going on out there. And hopefully through that process, we can reduce that friction and make it possible, not just easier, but in many cases possible to do new trials and examine new areas of disease. How do you see Amgen's clinical research developing? Are you doing more in Asia? Are you doing more, I mean, the actual capturing of data, you know, getting a database owned by Oracle and then doing those clinical trials with a CRO, do you see that moving more to other countries that would not traditionally have been 20 years ago? I'm not an expert on our, where we're doing our clinical trials and the decisions that go into that are, are you know, sort of multivariable. Sure, of course. The, but yes, we're going into sort of anywhere that is willing to sort of host us. We have to, in some, for some treatments, you need a very naive population that's not treated for any other illness. In other places, you need a very rare illness that may be, you know, be, you know, high frequency in only small number of areas. So we're going to go to those places. Weirdly, and, and actually I've talked to a number of government officials here, government officials everywhere want more investment in clinical trials. But what they don't know is that it's incredibly competitive now worldwide. Australia wants more investment in clinical trials, but they don't know that it's often cheaper to do it in Eastern Europe, and the level of science is almost as good, if not better. And they have more people. The quality of the scientists in Australia is fantastic. They've invested an enormous amount in their hospitals and in their scientific infrastructure but you can't get your money out because it takes eight, over 800 days to get a, a reimbursement for a drug even after it's been approved. France right now, 544 days after EMA approval, and that's France. Yeah. It's interesting. We, we have a client. I'm not going to say whom. We were talking to them, and they, they have a genetic therapy, and they were trying to negotiate with the French government. They said, look, we'll build a fab here. We'll build a factory. We'll work with your students. We'll set up an internship. You know, we'll... we'll invest big here all we ask is that you know it's an orphan drug you buy our therapy and they said no how do you get over those sort of humps internationally president macron over the last you know during his entire first term met invited and met with 
worldwide global pharma CEOs on a number of occasions. And at every one of those meetings, he said all the right things. I want your investment. I want your factories. We want to improve the level of treatment. And in his defense, he's been saying this for a couple of years now. He's really committed to it. And yet somehow, despite the fact that he's saying it, it dies in the bureaucracy somewhere. What we see the problem is, is that often the bureaucracies who are buying medicine see health as a cost. And not, an, yeah. and not as an investment. Yeah. So ministers of finance, they don't want to talk to their ministers of health. And we've asked, like, why won't you even have a meeting with your minister of health? All he wants is more money. I don't have money to give him. But if you tell the minister of finance, you know, for every person who has to stay home because they're sick, there's someone else who can't go to school because they have to take care of them. There's another family member who can't work. And it's a cascade of problems. If you can keep someone, let's say osteoporosis, if you can keep someone out of the hospital, the savings are extraordinary compared to the cost of an osteoporosis drug. But no one wants to think about that. They just want to think, oh, I'd rather not pay that much money for an osteoporosis drug. Yeah. So right now, going on in Geneva, the World Trade Organization has a meeting and top of the list of these issues are IP rights. Obviously, um, it's well known that about four years ago, I was invited to the Gastein Conference to have a debate with Ellen Tone from uh, Groningen University who advocates TRIPS waivers and TRIPS regulations to have EU governments essentially grab intellectual property and take it. We've had Elizabeth Warren propose the use of a little-known clause called marching rights, which is part of the Bayh-Dole, which would allow theoretically the government to come in and capture IP for pricing negotiations. Why are these ideas gaining traction now? Well, it's not new. Um, I've been, my career again, for over 30 years now, I've been working on intellectual property and arguing for the importance of maintaining intellectual property. It is the engine of innovation. If you're not able to retain your intellectual property, there's no point in inventing anything. And that's what you find. When you have places where there's no IP, there's very few innovations. Right. The, um, the debate in the WTO right now is rather unique in a number of ways, uh, the most notable of which is it is a totally fact-free debate. <laughs> Well, well, that always makes it convenient, I guess. Really, <laughs> it cuts the research budget down it's, a bit. Uh, you know, and it's easier. It's easier to <laughs> to sort of make speeches on that if you're untroubled by the reality on the ground. Every single person knows and realizes that right now we have a huge surplus of vaccines. Yeah. There are vaccines expiring on the shelves every day. Countries in Africa are finding themselves having to throw out vaccine doses because they can't get into arms, not because they can't get a hold of vaccine. I spoke at the GIRP, the distributor conference in Berlin three weeks ago, and several of the countries distributors were mentioning that, yeah, this week we're going to throw out 30 million doses. We're going to throw out 40 million doses. And we've been trying to give them away and nobody wants them. And and they're going to, you know, the, the industry is going to Next year, we'll, you know, manufacture another 10, 20 billion doses. It's extraordinary. Because they're under contract, and that's what's, that's that's, what's going to happen. <laughs> and, and there's a time limit on this, and we're going to, we may well need more vaccines. Yeah, anyway. absolutely. So there is an issue, I mean, you know, more broadly, there's an issue with public health. And certainly various governments in the United States with different administrations have expressed, you know, want to help address that problem, and they want to show they care. Avoiding the facts and supporting this kind of resolution in the WTO that would remove IP, you know, for vaccines, 
they think that's a good way of showing that they care. It's really destructive. What would happen? I mean, let's say the U.S. Congress, I mean, we've seen all sorts of crazy stuff. We're seeing CMS not agreeing with FDA about accelerated approvals. I mean, we're seeing all sorts of things happen. What would happen to the ecosystem? I mean, we're, we're here at Bio. There's 13,000 people. There's probably five, 600 companies. What would happen if March in was marched in? What would occur? Yeah. You know, the decline in the European sector that you referenced earlier, you know, the, the difference between 1985 and 1995 and the number of drugs sort yeah. of developing, it doesn't happen overnight. Japan changed its reimbursement mechanism and its time to market. Ten years later, things were extraordinary booming. Yeah. So nothing happens in switches on a dime. You know, there's things in train. There's procedures. The problem is the venture capital guy, he's got a choice, right? The guy with the venture capital can invest in an iPhone app and he can get his money out in six months, or he can take a flyer on 10 to 15 years and get his money out of a small biotech. What makes him change his mind? And reading in the newspaper that IP rights are going away are gonna make him change his mind. So he's, you know, he gets up one morning, not the biotech, I'm gonna go to the iPhone app, I'm gonna go to some other thing. And you multiply that over a number of years or months and years, and after 10 years, your industry's gone. You're a trade person, that's your background. You worked for the U.S. government. A lot of the bills that we'd been brought in to work with on you to sort of look at the impact of were things looking at U.S. pricing compared to European pricing, and they were bills to try and equalize that. IPI, the Innovative Pricing Initiative, Most Favored Nations, HR3, all of them had some element of we are going to average U.S. prices to a global benchmark of some type on international prices. What was interesting is all of those bills put the onus of that responsibility on the pharmaceutical entity who was no negotiating with the government who has the post, both the power of the purse and the power of the gun. I mean, essentially, they, it's a one-way negotiation. Why do you think none of the, well, the two administrations who dealt with this stuff, primarily the Obama administration and with the Trump administration, why do you think they didn't put them under trade? The issue that, we're, that, pe that frustrates people and the, the politician in this case is they believe there's a huge free rider problem that uh, the Europeans are taking advantage of the United States. Do you think they are? I think the free rider problem is an as an economic problem is very well studied and generally the person doing the production gets the most benefit. Yeah, of it's, course. You don't solve the free rider problem but what you do is focus on how well you're doing despite the free rider problem. Right. And it's, a, you know, Europe is able to, you know, to do what it can because there are, there's a huge innovation engine in the United States, but it's U.S. consumers who are benefiting the most. Ultimately, yeah. So the, the question about trade, the question, how do you get something done? Are trade tools the right way to affect a change? So it isn't a question of whether it's a trade problem or not. The question is, what is it about the trade regime that we work under? What is it about existing trade rules or processes or structures that would do a better job of addressing this question? Now, the one thing about trade agreements is, or trade in general, is that you spend an enormous amount of time talking to each other. <laughs> and that's... More than normal. Well, perhaps more than normal, hopefully productively, <laughs> but nevertheless, there's a, there's a lot of talking. We'll discuss that over a beer later. There, we'll there talk you go, yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, however it's done, the United States has not had a dialogue at any official level with the European Union 
about what is going on in the overall world pharmaceutical sector. And why is that? That seems odd to me. I mean, this is 20% of our GDP. You would think that this would be, given all the heat we've seen in the Hill on this, why not? That's a great question. Um, I don't think people have thought about it so much as an integrated international issue. I think they're coming around to that, that point right now. Um, the current proposal for trade and technology um, consultations between the U.S. and the EU is one way to improve things because it, it's an opportunity to talk about a whole range of subjects, but from economic to security and other, and other topics. And so that's, that's something to do. There's an awful lot of pride in both sides of the Atlantic about our system is better. Why would we want to talk to them? The Europeans think we're insane. We think they're crazy. So there's not been a lot of common not, ground to talk. They're not mutually exclusive positions, by any <laughs> No, nor did I intend to say that they were. <laughs> yes. No, and, and so I think that's why I don't think people have sort of thought about it in that way. Attempts to sort of force us to solve the problem for the government are doomed to failure, and I think that's you've seen that. I mean, while there have been a lot of proposals, it hasn't come to fruition. There needs to be a way to have a discussion about how both of us want to see this industry develop. How do we expect the structure to keep going? Do we value innovation? Do we need innovation in such a way? I think the answer is yes. I certainly am highly invested in that answer being yes. But other people have to make that decision. I mean, ultimately, if one of these things would have passed, if circulating in a country like Italy that's probably generating generating two, three percent of your gross revenue, you would probably say it, we're not. And it's also killing your average price, which would have been under HR three. You'd probably say, well, we're not going to go. I mean, Europe would have ended up being the big loser. And ultimately, the big loser are the patients. That seems like an extremely cynical political policy to me. I don't think people fully understood the ramifications of what they were doing. They assumed that there would be other engagements that would increase investment or that somehow European governments would make different choices to stop any decline in health care. I, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what would have happened. It's impossible to predict for sure, of course. Um, but your last point is the most important one. The real losers would have been patient. Absolutely. I mean, and we've already seen it with several companies now pulling up lock, stock, and barrel and leaving Europe. They're actually saying we're, we're departing. I mean, we have seen examples now. And it was quite interesting. It sort of shocked a lot of the European politicians. Like, wow, why'd they do that? It's like, well, you're not willing to buy their truck. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdly, we're, you know, at, at one level, we're very simple people. <laughs> so the industry's gotten hit every which way from Sunday the last few years. All the pricing bills, then COVID. Um, now you're having the accelerated approval called into question. FDA and CMS aren't agreeing. You have international trade issues with China. Uh, you have And other issues. Uh, yeah, other issues, WTO issues going on. I mean, whole retinue of things mm -hmm. going on. Okay, if I were to give you a magic wand and say, okay, Paul, you could make one wish to try and fix this stuff right now, what, what do you, where would you start? Where, what do you hit first? Magic wand time, huh? Yeah, or uh, um, genie, you know, yeah, yeah. genie. Fairy you know, dust? Can lab. I do fairy dust? You can do fairy dust. Pixie dust? Pixie fairy dust? dust. Oh, yeah, okay. anything you want here. That's right. Good, yeah. good, good. A magic uh, troll. Bridge troll. Bridge troll. We can go bridge troll. <laughs> we go Scandinavian <laughs> on it. Okay. <laughs> the, um, at the end of the day, these are the questions that we're talking about are political issues. Right. That have to be supported by the public. I, let me say this. I think they're political issues that are supported by economic realities. 
Well, true, but yeah. but the the public. It, it, Politicians aren't trying to change the structure of the industry just because they woke up on the wrong side of the bed. They're being driven to it by pressures coming from what they see as their constituents. It's a political calculus. Yes. And, you know, wherever I've been in the world, politicians do try to respond to their public. Even the most authoritarian governments keep, kind of keep their pulse on their public. And there's demand for change. My solution to the problem is I'd like to see, and we're working on this in a number of ways, a lot more education and understanding among the public about what the value of health is. You think you're taking a pill. What's that really worth to you? you okay, well, I can go to work today. I feel better today than I, you know, I didn't yesterday. I, you know, I get to get out of bed a couple days earlier than I would have otherwise. What's that really worth to you? And what's it worth to society? You know what it you may know, you know, have a pretty clear indication that getting better for you or having, you know, some physical problem fixed for you, what that means. But what does it mean to society as a whole? What does it mean to the economy as a whole? And why isn't there more work being done by ministers of health or departments of health or anything to get a better handle on what it means to invest in health? There's been a lot of work on that on vaccines. I mean, apart from, apart, yeah, apart from you know, the COVID vaccine, probably the most cost-effective medicine you got, you know, childhood vaccines. Phenomenal. Why isn't there that same discussion about other treatments? I, I raised the issue of osteoporosis earlier. Staggeringly expensive. People spend an enormous amount of time in the hospitals as a result of osteoporotic fractures. Frankly, much more time in the hospital for that than they do on really more serious problems. It's an issue that can be addressed, can be reduced significantly. And that whole cost could just, you know, go away for, you know, in exchange for relatively meager investment in medicines and other treatments, early screening by doctors. So that enhanced understanding of what the value of health really means is important. We talk a lot, a lot of people talk about it, and of course we all talk about all the time about the cost of medicine and the cost of health and how high it is. People are, out, are constantly claiming they're outraged by the high cost of medicine. The cost itself as a number is not the relevant question. The relevant question from an economic standpoint is, what are you getting for that money? What, what's the opportunity cost of you doing that? And, you know, 20% of the U.S. gross domestic product is in the healthcare sector. Is that right or wrong? Well, we don't know because we don't know the value of that. If that's actually doubling the other 80% of the economy, that's a pretty good investment. If it's not, if it's only increasing GDP, you know, by 5%, that's not a very good investment. We don't know that, and no one has a good grasp on that. And certainly they're not looking at it in Europe. They're not looking at it in other countries. Paul, it's always a pleasure to see you. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, really, thank you for the conversation. It's been awesome. Absolutely. Likewise. Always enjoyable from my end. Thanks, Paul. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen O'Laughlin. This Vital Health podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2022.